0: This is the last Sunday after Epiphany. And this year, we've had a lot of Sundays after Epiphany. Uh, We have a uh, calendar in the workroom of the parish office (coughs) that is from the Church Pension Fund or the Church Insurance Company or something. And the cartoon that's on the top of the calendar for this month is sort of a parish staff meeting meeting. And the rector is saying, you know, we've, Epiphany's been so long this year that we've just run out of, of Epiphany hymns. And uh, another member of the staff said, why is Easter so late this year? Is that something the diocese has done? <laughs> Herb Cain, the columnist, used to call that unclear on the concept But we're now poised to enter the solemn season of Lent on Ash Wednesday, and every last Sunday after Epiphany in the Episcopal Church, we celebrate another celebration of the Feast of the Transfiguration. In the Roman Catholic Church, they do this on the second Sunday in Lent. We do it at this point in the liturgical year because it is good preparation for the solemn season of Lent and for what will take place during Holy Week and a reminder of the glory that is to come, a reminder of God's illuminative processes at work in the hearts of all faithful people and the energy that that provides each of us to engage in a period of serious self-examination and reflection, perhaps in a more intentional sense than we do it through the normal part of the Christian year. So this morning I'm going to speak briefly about Epiphany, the season as I always have on each of the Sundays after Epiphany, to say some things to you about the reading from Exodus and from 2 Peter, and then to focus on the Transfiguration story itself as we have received it from Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew's Gospel in the account of the Transfiguration is very similar to what is in Mark and in, in Luke but there is uh, i think one notable difference that we might uh, focus on as we move forward so epiphany begins with an epiphany the epiphany and it ends with a couple of epiphanies the one in exodus that we uh, read about uh, moses and also the story of the transfiguration and in second peter we have a commentary on the transfiguration uh, itself. Moses goes up to the mountain and he is present there for 40 days. Remember the great theme of Epiphany is how do we make manifest the presence of God? And making manifest the presence of God uh, has two parts. The one that people in our age tend to focus on is the way in which we make manifest in terms of our own subjective emotional, spiritual, and mental states and how we do that in relationship with other people. But it is also a season that says something about the universality, as Epiphany is, the universality of the message of the presence of Christ to the world, about the importance of the church as the vehicle, the means of conveyance, through, the, through time of the deep things of Christian faith and belief. You know, if you think about what the church... One of the great definitions I read recently in a book written by Bishop N.T. Wright, who was recently the Bishop of Durham until he retired or resigned and went to the University of St. Andrews in Edinburgh. The church is the single multi-ethnic family promised by God to Abraham. It was brought into being through Israel's Messiah, Jesus. It was energized by God's Spirit, and it was called to bring the transformative news of God's rescuing justice to the whole creation. That's a commercial message for the church, the institutional church. Herbert O'Driscoll, the great Canadian preacher and Anglican priest, in a lecture I heard him give a number of years ago now, said, any spirituality worth its salt institutionalizes. We have a tendency always to think that God's revelatory processes are happening outside some official channel. To be sure, we need to be open to this all the time. But the fact of the matter is, is that uh, we do receive some wisdom through the Tradition with a capital T. And Episcopalians believe there are three places where we look for what is authoritative. The Bible, the Tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. So by virtue of this, the Church, in the way it has understood the Christ event, who Jesus is how we participate in the divine life. What does it mean when we read about the mediatorial process that existed between God and Moses and the people of Israel? How did this covenantal relationship then move into a situation where the Savior of the world came and said, you know, because we are people of the covenant, we have not been vested with certain privileges. We have been given certain opportunities and responsibilities with regard to the proclamation to the world as a people, as church, that God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness is for everyone. And we are to be the instruments of bringing people into God's saving embrace. So in, in, in the reading from Exodus, we have this epiphany and Moses will appear not uh, dissimilar to Jesus when he comes down from the mountain, and it will be equally off-putting to the people of Israel when they see His face. In Second Peter, we, ha- we read today from um, what most biblical scholars believe is the latest piece of writing in the New Testament. It dates maybe from about 110, 120 AD. And so clearly it couldn't have been written by Peter the Apostle. But the interesting thing is, because of the way in which this kind of research is done, the description of the transfiguration in this epistle is probably earlier and more close to the original than the accounts in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke And why it's here is, how were Christian people appropriating this epiphany in their own community, in their own time? And more to the point, how are they beginning to come to grips with the interpretive processes that Christian people must engage in with regard to the biblical text? You know? Remember, one of my great influences is it's not in, as important what the Bible says as what the Bible means. And you need to be a student of how that happens. And in Second Peter, we get something of this. But the most important quote in the whole of that passage is this one. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by human will But men and women moved by the Holy Spirit from God. And that's why the interpretive processes of the church are important. You know, we we tend, as I mentioned earlier, to always think the truth, the true proclamation must be from some anti-institutional or untraditional source and therefore it has to be the more authentic I always find it interesting in this day and age since there's been a whole lot of criticism of institutional Christianity, some of it not without justification to be sure, but a readiness to do this kind of thing. I also think about what G.K. Chesterton said uh, in one of his writings, when people stop believing in God it doesn't mean they don't believe anything, it means they'll believe in anything, right? Right? this is not to throw any cold water on what may be in it but i always think to myself people are ready to read books on the spiritual life from people who i have no idea who they are or what their who is eckhart tolle for god's sake he was on oprah now he may be a guy who's full of insights deeply deeply steeped in all of the spiritual traditions of humanity but good night, nurse. You know, we'll read him and believe him before we read the biblical text or any uh, statement on the spiritual life by any of the great masters in the Christian tradition. So it seems to me to be a bit odd. That's just an observation from someone veering towards curmudgeonism and trying to valiantly resist it. We've gotten in a lot of hot water in the Christian church since the Protestant Reformation uh, advocating that everybody can interpret the Bible for themselves. You know, depending on what species of Protestantism you're part of, that figure's either large or less large in your tradition. But uh, there are people who say, you know, it means what I say it means. And the answer to that is no, it doesn't. It needs to be in some way conditioned by what it is that we call the informed intellect about these things as opposed to just thinking, making it so. And there's a lot more of that around than uh, is absolutely necessary in my view. So Peter is struggling with this, or the author of Second Peter is struggling with it, and saying that what we've learned is, is that we have to have some kind of a balance between what the tradition tells us in terms of the interpretation of the text and how we as individuals and corporately come to the challenges and opportunities that we confront now in circumstances that may be different in every age how we interpret the biblical text. And that's best done in a conversation together and not with merely falling back on your own prejudices and biases about what is true or not. In Matthew's Gospel, we have the story of the transfiguration, as Matthew gives it to us. Before I get into that, the Greek word for transfiguration is metamorphosis. You've heard of that. You've heard of that term, some kind of transformation, some kind of change. Father Thomas Keating says, that at the transfiguration, what occurred at the transfiguration in the presence of those apostles was that the divine source of Jesus' human personality poured out through every pore of his body in the form of light. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, we call this the uncreated light. So if that sounds kind of twilight zone-ish to you or hard to understand, one of the ways that we would seek to appropriate this text and make it part of our own personal history is to say whether or not we have ever seen anyone who has reflected the uncreated light. And I was thinking about my own life and if I ever had, and I think... I know at least one instance when it was very clear to me. Many years ago when I was in seminary, I'd come back uh, to San Francisco to Grace Cathedral for in- in interviews and all the things you have to do to go through the, the process towards ordination. You know, they make sure... It's like, you know, you go see the psychiatrist where he makes sure that you really are nuts to want to do this. You know, that, <laughs> that kind of thing. And... Uh, other interviews, so it was at the same time that the Trinity Institute uh, was uh, going on, which is something that is sponsored or used to be by Trinity Church Wall Street. And that year, one of the speakers was Brother Roger Schultz, who was a founding member of the Taise community in France. And he was there and was one of the speakers and I heard him speak. And a friend of mine said, uh, you know, I've met uh, Brother Roger, would you like to meet him? And I said, sure. So there was this break and we go back into the room he was waiting in and stuff and I got introduced to him. And when I saw his face, I realized that 's what i didn 't have that term then, but that 's exactly what I saw. His face absolutely shone. It was a face of absolute serenity, and it reminded me because I just finished reading uh, in seminary a, a uh, helen Waddell's "The Desert Fathers, and there 's a quotation uh, in that book from Saint athanasius of alexandria 's biography of Saint Anthony who's a famous desert father. St. Anthony lived as a recluse for 25 or 30 years out in the desert in a cave. So word was coming out that St. Anthony was going to come out of his cave. And so a whole lot of people came out to the desert to see what St. Anthony was going to be like and what he was going to look like. And St. Athanasius said, he's writing at about 370, 375. He said, we're all there waiting and out comes St. Anthony. He looked around, he saw the crowd. He didn't appear uh, happy to see us. He didn't particularly appear unhappy to see us. He didn't look like a man wasted by hair-raising austerities. He was a man completely at home with himself. He was a man completely at home with himself. Wouldn't you like somebody to say that about you? That's what the uncreated light is in Eastern Orthodox spirituality. So we've all seen this in people, you know, even in small people who have in some way are going through a good period in their life or have had some good things happen to them or by their own efforts they have learned now how to meet the challenges and the opportunities that they face and they feel some species of serenity, and you can see it on their face. So when you think about the transfiguration, don't think about it as some way remote thing that you just simply can't even appropriate, but something that allowed the disciples who were there to, as Dr. John McQuarrie would say, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, they were allowed to see him in depth. They got it. And all of you have had that happen in one sense, in big and small ways, you know. Even if you've learned how to program your remote, you may have achieved a certain species of serenity and metamorphosis, right? I'm not making light of this, it's important, because that's how we have to somehow come to terms with all of these things. Now, the difference... Between Matthew's gospel and Mark and Luke's gospel in the story of the epiphany, uh, it will come in a minute, but here's the other piece to the transfiguration story that's so good. It's a cautionary tale to all of us about mountaintop experiences, right? Right? In some parts of the recovery movement, there's a, there's a, uh, at, at the meetings, that some people will say, may your recovery be slow. There needs to be some kind of uh, perspective. And all of us who have had some kind of epiphany uh, would wish that we would feel like that and understand like that all the time we would like to freeze that experience you felt that in in great uh, emotional and spiritual falling in love, uh, uh, being uh, uh, stimulated by some speech or some understanding of this, uh, having a breakthrough in your own prayer or being in church and having things come to you or some something of this kind. We wish that was true all of the time. And there's some spiritual practice and some people who think that we should endlessly seek it and, do, and just break our neck trying to, find, to get that in feeling all the time. All of the great writers on the spiritual life, including St. Anthony, said, don't do that. It is unwise to do this. Peter, who in the Gospels, I think, constitutes every man, He wants to do what we all yearn to do. So he says to Jesus, when Moses and Elijah are milling around there with him, boy, it's a good thing we're here. I'll build three dwellings. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you. We'll keep them here. I don't know whether dwellings is an improvement on booths, which was the old translation We'll build three booths. Three booths always look like you'd have Jesus and and, uh, Elijah and Moses sort of leaning out and saying, "Eh, 75 cents for three of these balls, Knock the milk. You know, (laughs) sort of sitting in a booth, you know. But booths in the ancient Near East didn't mean that. It meant something else. Keep you there, a dwelling place for you. So just after that, Peter is disabused of this because he is distracted by a cloud that descends on the mountain and on them and a voice that said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And when the cloud disappears, Jesus finds the apostles prostrate. They were afraid You know, in the biblical text, most of the time when people get near God, the the emotional response they feel is fear. It isn't, oh, you know. The dean of my seminary used to say, uh, it's like saying your prayers in church and all of a sudden uh, discovering that right next to you is a ginormous electric generator that's humming. And you think, boy, I hope this energy isn't going to kill me. Or be it dangerous, I'm afraid. But what does the Savior do? He leans over in Matthew's gospel, not in the other two, and he touches them. And he said, do not be afraid. Perhaps that's one of the most important things about the mighty works of Jesus Christ. He brings to the relationship between God and the creation that God made and called good, a certain gentle quality, a certain affirmation of our humanity, the unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness that we come to trust in and know. But you know, it is somewhat different uh, than what we might think in terms of sentiment. C.S. Lewis, in one of his writings, uh, talks about the difference between the Victorian angels, the pictures of the Victorian angels, and the depiction in art of angels in the Middle Ages. And he said, the Victorian angels always look like they fluttered down from heaven and have come up to each one of us and have said, "There, are <laughs> there. And the medieval angels look they, like they have come down and with their wings of love beating next to us have said, Fear not. Fear not. So this week, think about God's transfiguring power. You and I, as Episcopalians, believe that one of the locations for God's transfiguring power is in the sacramental life of the Church. And so we encounter this transformational life on a weekly basis. It is also possible for us, as we reflect on our own personal history, to remind ourselves of those times in our own lives when maybe metamorphosis was something that we could attach to some events in our life and we can cherish those as sort of uh, spiritual resources when we reflect about things. And so as you move towards the solemn season of Lent, remember that uh, God is with you and don't be afraid. Amen.